this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 203, recording on Thursday, March 30th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Amanda Nelson, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Hello. It's lovely to have you here with me this week. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff is in Palm Springs doing whatever it is people do in Palm Springs. Lounging, one imagines. Lounging. Hopefully there's a very fruity cocktail Mm -hmm. involved. Um, And so here we are in kind of dreary, rainy Richmond today. April showers came early. Mm. I really enjoy the mental image of Jeff in like a sun hat with a daiquiri. <laughs> I want that to be what's happening right now. He uh, is notable for his enjoyment of like the pinkest beverage on the menu. Um, I think that we've even discussed that on the show. So I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. So I'm I'm pretty positive. Like if there is a drink that is being served to him in a coconut, he's doing that right now. Yes, go Jeff. <laughs> Live for all of us, Jeff. <laughs> right. I'll just be over here with that secret bottle of bourbon that lives in my bedside table. <laughs> that you just told like thousands of people about. <laughs> um, before we get started, let's do our first sponsor this week. We've got Third Love back this week. Uh, and Third Love is a revolutionary bra company. Most women change bra sizes an average of six times in their lives. I can't decide every time I read these notes if that sounds like a lot or a little, given how long life is and all of the things that can happen to women's bodies. But six times, I am guessing that you have not been sized relatively recently because most women have not. So you need to find the perfect fitting bra that can make all the difference. Third Love's bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements, and they range in size from double A to G cups. So lots of range there, but they also include signature half cup sizes in between some, but not all of those cup sizes. So like if a B is too small and a C is too big, you can try a B and a half. Um, This is relatively uncommon. It's awesome that Third Love makes that possible. No matter your body shape, you are sure to find a fit that's right for you. With Third Love's Fit Finder, speaking of having not been sized recently, it takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and style for your body. It's really easy. You answer some questions, you take some quick measurements, and Third Love says, beep, beep, boop, magic. This is, your, <laughs> this is your bra size. So what are you waiting for? You can say goodbye to slipping straps, to side overflow, to tags that get in the way. The hook and eye section of these bras... Um, it's tagless, and I love that. And just try Third Love today. They stand beside their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try any bra from the 24-7 collection for free. You just pay $2.99 for shipping. So you take the tags off, you wear it, you wash it, you live in it for 30 days like you would any other bra. Make sure it's your new favorite. If you love it, you keep it. They'll charge your card. If you don't love it, you send it back for free, and your card does not be charged. <laughs> Is not, will not be. It's going to be one of those days. Uh, go to thirdlove.com slash bookriot to get started today. That's thirdlove.com slash bookriot. Thanks to them for sponsoring. 
Handmaid's Tale. Oh, Handmaid's Tale. We have like another week where there's no overarching book news story. I guess we should note we saw and a million of you guys tweeted to us. We know that it's happening, that the book that shall not be named that was dropped by Simon and Schuster has been picked up or potentially picked up by a small conservative publisher. That's a thing that's happening. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Who cares? Um, yeah. I'm <laughs> like, done. it's not I'm a like surprise done. that someone yeah. is picking it up. The dude who will not be named got a lot of publicity out of the whole ordeal of having his book canceled. So, like, of course this is happening because, of course, there are people who are willing to pay money to read this book. Um, so let's talk about dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> we have segues? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> We've been talking for, I don't know, like the last six months about the resurgence of some major dystopian titles in the wake of the current political climate. 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale are among them. And Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, because they are geniuses, is capitalizing on this new popularity, and they are reissuing 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale with new covers. And these are striking and pretty cool. The Handmaid's Tale one brings back that iconic look from the original cover um, of a woman in a red cape and sort of a white bonnet situation. Um, but the whole cover is essentially a silhouette of her. And 1984 looks like an eye, like you're being watched, I don't know, by Big Brother, maybe? Hey yeah. So these are gorgeous. Uh, let's see. The 1984 comes out on April 4th, and the new edition of The Handmaid's Tale comes out April 25th, conveniently right around the time that the show drops on Hulu. So if you want to check those out, if you're looking for a new copy of one of these two books, or you just want to add the most recent additions to your shelf, we'll have a link in the show notes and you can noodle around on that. But this is just going to be an ongoing story. I think what the stuff that happens to 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale in the current political moment, uh, I feel like we're just going to be talking about that for a while. I feel like I should reread them, but I'm not going to. Oh, you know, a uh, friend of mine read The Handmaid's Tale for the first time recently, um, a guy friend here in Richmond, and he was like, this is terrifying. How is it 30 years old? I yep. Like, I know. Did you hear about, um, oh, when the trailer dropped, which was like, when the full trailer dropped, which was like earlier this week, mm -hmm. a bunch of Trump supporters were tweeting at the director about um, you know, Hulu putting out this anti-Trump propaganda, mm -hmm. and the director was like, "This story is thirty years old. <laughs> like, it is nothing. It's not about Donald Trump, you Nimrod." <laughs> yeah, and they were like, th "This show was in the works before the outcome of the of election, the election. Yeah. was known." Um, and I think Jeff and I were joking last week that like the people at Hulu that acquired this must be patting themselves on the back, but in the most like cringy way of like. <laughs> At least we got this show and it's going to be a huge success. But oh my gosh, I wish it weren't in this moment. <laughs> yeah. I just really love the like infinite offendability of Trump fans. Mm -hmm. Like they get so in their panties twisted about the most ridiculous things. Like this was not... Margaret Atwood did not write this about you. You are not the center of the known universe. Get right. There is, a, there is no more fragile ego in the current moment, I believe you were saying, yeah. offline this morning. And I think that's right. Uh, and speaking of Margaret Atwood, 
and writing, the second Handmaid's Tale headline this week is that she has written a continuation of The Handmaid's Tale exclusively for Audible. It's performed by a full cast for a new version of the audiobook. The rest of the book is performed by Claire Danes. Um, and I've heard great things about the Claire Danes performance of The Handmaid's Tale. So the all this new material begins after the original last line of the book. So it picks, if you have read the book, you know what happens in sort of like that last chapter. Um, so I'm not going to actually say anything more about it because if you're listening to this and you have not read the book, I don't want to spoil you. Um, but this is new material that extends the story. And um, there's a preview from it at Entertainment Weekly if you want to hear an excerpt from the new material. Uh, so um, Atwood and Hulu and HMH are all just doing a great job, you know, keeping the publicity wheels turning for this thing. All right. There is a very Amanda Nelson story oh, on the agenda this week. <laughs> like, it sometimes it just works out beautifully when you're on the show that like something that's just 100% your wheelhouse happens that week. <laughs> So take it away, Amanda. Okay, so a military historian named Nicholas Reynolds, who is writing a new biography about Hemingway called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, um, (laughs) which is excellent, well done, sir, uh, was doing a, he was curating a 2010 exhibit at the CIA Museum and discovered, like, documents that Hemingway might have had some life in the intelligence community, which is unsurprising considering his, you know, when he lived and his military experience and all that. But then the further he dug, he he realized that um, Hemingway was not a spy for the U.S. government. He was a spy for the Soviet Union. (laughs) So his his spy service turned out to be for the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which was the organization that predated the KGB and then became the KGB. Good grief. Um, I know. So uh, he was apparently, unsurprisingly, not a very good spy because Hemingway was not very good at most things uh, except writing short sentences. And so (laughs) don't at me. (laughs) Nope. Don't, don't don't care. Don't care. Uh, So he um, apparently did not ever actually do anything with his position in the spy community. Like he, he, there's no evidence that he turned any, any over any information to the Soviets or anything like that. And this biographer, Nicholas Reynolds really thinks that his, um, association had more to do with his anti-fascist beliefs, which makes sense considering the role that he played like during the Spanish Civil War and all that, um, and had less to do with like any bad feelings he had about America or any particular affinity he felt for the Soviet Union, um, but was more about wanting to overthrow fascism. So that's just really interesting. And for somebody like Hemingway is such the epitome of like American masculinity. He's like the thing, like the platonic ideal, right, of American mm-hmm. intellectual masculinity, and t- like to add this, like actually spy for the communists kind of an element <laughs> is really like, wait, what? <laughs> I've been so looking forward to talking about this with you today because I need to know what you think, if anything, this is going to do to sort of the Hemingway biography that gets presented to students. You know, like I remember sitting in English classes and you see the pictures of him like basically with booze in one hand and like a gun in the other going hunting. (laughs) And it's like, this is a man. And like, of course, you know, you're going to learn all of those things about Hemingway, but this feels significant. Like he was very tortured and one would imagine that signing on to spy for one of your nation's enemies, for whatever reason, involves also keeping a lot of secrets and holding a lot of um, 
sort of notions that are counter to each other in your mind at the same time. Yeah. And could, could, would just be mentally very difficult. And I wonder if this will, like, is this going to contribute to our cultural understanding of who Hemingway is? Or is it a footnote? Or is it like a New York Times headline for one day? And then it, we, no one cares. I think it'll be a footnote, if anything, because since he, he didn't actually do anything with it. And I can imagine him, you know, in Spain during that time when he was fighting against the fascists, like actually joining a military that wasn't associated with the United States to fight fascism, um, like a young idealistic guy being like, well, what organization can I join that will further this cause on an international stage, you know, and the Soviet Union was certainly one of them. Um, and then, I mean, like later, later in his life, he had a lot of friends in the American military, um, really high ranking officers. So I doubt that they would have like continued to be buddies with him if there was any actual commune. I mean, I thought, I mean, who knows? I mean, like Hemingway spent tons of time in Cuba. That's you true. Know, and, you know, lefty Europe. So, <laughs> but it is really interesting how we hold him as, in such this, like, I don't know red-blooded American guy thing. Well, that's just really not real. That's not real at all. I wonder what the expiration date on that is, given the evolution in the conversations that we're having in the culture about masculinity and how toxic the traditional and restrictive definitions of masculinity are. Mm -hmm. Um, How much longer we'll be like, yes, he was a man, because like nobody cares about that. Okay, I'm not nobody. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. care about that. Um, Those, you know, sort of stereotypical doodly things but he was like the doodliest if that's he the was thing. quite doodly lots <laughs> of shooting of animals and not writing women well which is which are both very doodly traits apparently <laughs> i guess i don't know you can learn more about these things in writer <laughs> sailor soldier spy which is already out apparently it says here it debuted on the nonfiction hardcover list at number 14 uh so there's your homework for the weekend amanda <laughs> I just love that title so much. I know. I'm usually kind of eye-rolly at the plays on Tinker Taylor because that's such an iconic title and the like the tendency for people to copy it just is so frequent. It's all over the place, but this is a good use. I approve. Yeah. Gold star. <laughs> yeah. Where do you want to go next? We have just a whole bunch of Ooh. random stuff this week. Oh, Norway. Let's talk about Norway. Oh, okay. I like this. Yeah, I like this too. So in um, Svalbard, Norway, they famously have the seed vault. That's like in case the world just like disappears, basically in case of doomsday. (laughs) Svalbard has the global seed vault where they're storing seeds to help, I guess, restart life on Earth. Um, But now countries and people groups around the world are being invited to place digitized versions of their most precious texts inside the World Arctic Archive, um, which is basically a doomsday vault for books. Uh, It's not the only doomsday library out there. Apparently for years now, a North Carolina IT professional named Rocky Rollins, which tell me that is not a hero name, um, has been updating a survivor library that's currently about 7,000 books in PDF format that teach people how to rebuild civilization. So his is really about surviving, uh, but this World Arctic Archive in Svalbard is going to contain precious literary texts. Um, If you're wondering, like, why Svalbard? It's on a remote archipelago that's between mainland Norway and the North Pole. So it's very hard to get to. A doomsday situation is not likely there, uh, I would guess. Uh, So, yeah. I just keep thinking about the... uh, 
the episode of Parks and Recreation where they do the time capsule and that guy wants to put (laughs) Twilight into it. My favorite part about this are like the random little details about Svalbard. Like, you don't need to have a visa to get there. You just need to have a job. Oh. And the people who live there are required by law to carry a gun at all times in case they run into polar bears. (laughs) I just... That's so good. <laughs> also, in the event of Doomsday, I'm going to go to Rocky's house. Like, I'm not going to go to Svalbard <laughs> to read Twilight or whatever. I'm going to go to the this North so Carolina true. to get yeah, a book yeah. about veterinary medicine and embalming, which is like the list of the stuff that he's collected is like mathematics, veterinary medicine, astronomy, and embalming, among other subjects. I'm assuming that Rollins or that Rocky has books about like how to start a fire. And yes. How to let's hunt. hope so. <laughs> Those are the things that I would be interested in. Not so like much. The works of Bear Grylls. Yes. <laughs> yes. And not necessarily like all the best literature of the Western canon. I don't care. I know. It's such a romantic notion, you know, like let's digitize texts and save them for after Doomsday. But my first question is like, okay, if Doomsday happens, then how are we supposed to read all these digitized? <laughs> oh, they're on film. So um, I don't know. I guess you could just flip through them. But there's, there's that um, group of characters in Fahrenheit 451, those old professors who like wander around in the forest and they've memorized entire books and they just carry them around in their brains. And like, this is also such a romantic notion of like, we should, of course, we want to maintain the world's great literature. But it's like, if the apocalypse basically happens and the only thing left are the people toting their polar bear guns around in Svalbard, like, what are we going to do with books? Like, I both love and kind of hate hearing these pieces of news. Um, It's like, we want to preserve our culture for future generations, of course, but also we probably just need seeds and guns and food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like these, you know, great beloved works of literature from around the world that are going to be saved, if if doomsday ever comes, are going to be looked back not as, they're not going to be used as like a way to rebuild civilization. They're going to be looked back on as artifacts of a time before whatever event it is right. the world as we know it. So it'll be more the, it'll be more like a museum than, than a, yeah. an actual library and because one assumes that, you know, culture reboots and they'll have new values after the end of the world. Well, here's hoping. <laughs> like, Humanity also, will be concerned with other things. How do you decide what goes in there? Like, I would like to know who is the arbiter of these digital archives for like, are we just putting in the classic books by dead white people? Or are we putting in also literature of the present day? Like, is a copy of The Hate You Give going to go in as mm. an indication of what happened uh, or what what is ongoing with Black Lives Matter? Um, or is somebody writing a book about Brexit and that's going to get tossed in so we can remember that like the cultural and social history that Britain exist at one, existed at one <laughs> right, point. At one point that was a thing. There was a country over there. Huh? <laughs> they didn't have any polar bears. <laughs> yeah. This whole like doomsday library thing. I think it's the thing that we do to make ourselves feel better more than anything else. Like it's a fight against mortality, <laughs> but uh, whatever that exists. <laughs> if you're excited about it, I'm sorry to rain on your parade. Go to Svalbard. Uh, but bring can, a gun. Yeah, right. You will be just fine there. <laughs> or you'll get arrested, um, apparently. Talking about books that are worth holding on to, uh, this week we got to see the finalists for the 2017 Young Lions Fiction Award. This honors the work of um, five authors every year um, who are, I think, I believe it's debut novels only. Um, or they just have to be young. 
under 35. Under 35. Uh, And this is from the New York Public Library. Big award every year. This year's list is super interesting. And maybe for the first time ever, I happen to have read all of them. Oh, nice. I've read three. Uh, so it is We Show What We Have Learned by Claire Beams, which is a weird and wonderful collection of short stories. If you like Karen Russell, you're going to like We Show What We Have Learned. Um, the Mothers by Britt Bennett, which we both loved because mm. everyone loved it, but it was your favorite book of last year. Yeah. Uh, we Love You, Charlie Freeman by Caitlin Greenidge. That is a weird little novel about a family <laughs> that... Did you read this? No. They this family gets recruited to go live at a like scientific research institute that is studying they study primates and humans and they want to figure out the scientists want to figure out if a chimp can't is it a, he's a chimp or an orangutan I can't remember if a monkey um can like fit into a human family and so the freemans go live like in a dorm in this institution and they get charlie freeman is their monkey brother who gets like placed with their family um, <laughs> yeah and the whole thing is an allegory for race like it's genius and funny and so smart so i can't talk today smart uh, it's so smart and surprising uh here comes the sun by nicole dennis ben um, set in Jamaica, really wonderful novel, and The Association of Small Bombs by uh, Karan Mahajan uh, about what happens to two families after uh, uh, bombing in a small, not in a small town, in a uh, marketplace. I and wish that that book had gotten more, me too, more buzz or whatever last year. It was it really, was, really interesting. It, it was really good. I don't think that I heard about <laughs> it even until the paperback release was about to happen. I wonder if we just like aren't ready for a book that humanizes what we consider mm. terrorists. Oh, right, because there is a whole line of narrative in there um, that shows how a young man gets radicalized, and you yeah. feel sympathy for him. Yeah, because a lot of because a lot of that is our fault. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's just how it is. And so, you know, I, 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 that's the only explanation I could come up with for why that book, which was so good, didn't get more yeah. attention was that maybe we're just like not ready to go there. I think you're right. You know, it's interesting looking at this list of finalists, all of them really, except for we show what we have learned, address race and culture and class and politics um, in a very contemporary and timely way and we show what we have learned has some interesting gender stuff yeah it's very I th- it's super feminist I thought yeah uh, so this is a really good list like I don't know if I had and and also these were like other than the mothers these were all under the radar like here comes the sun had a lot of pre-pub buzz but I didn't hear much about it after it came out I thought it was one of the best books of the year last year um ditto for we love you Charlie Freeman and we show what we have learned was super memorable so all five of these really like I'm really happy to see the NYPL pull these five um as uh books from 2016 that deserve recognition this year it's not the expected list and that's really refreshing um i'm looking at the list of past winners and it's really really great amelia gray for gut shot oh yeah uh, battleborn uh which mm-hmm. is claire bay walkins collection of short stories swamplandia i really like that one yep uh well, these are all really good beasts of no nation good this is an interesting prize i've never really paid attention to this uh to this one before but to this prize um, mm-hmm. yeah this I one's worth I'm... looking at nice job nypl you... Yeah, good job. Usually when we get these headlines about prize finalists, I drop them onto the podcast agenda, like, oh, we should talk about that this week. And then by the time that we get around to recording the show, it's like, oh, well, it's just a list of books. I don't really care. But this is great. And these are all very deserving of a wider readership. 
So yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Want to tell us about our next sponsor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so our next sponsor is the title, Marlena by Julie Bunton. This is out from Henry Holt and Company. So this is a debut novel about love and addiction and loss. It's about two young girls, and what the the, uh, the copy calls uh, says it's about their feral year that costs one of the girls her life. And I love that they call a year feral. That makes that's like such an interesting, mm-hmm. I don't know, way of putting it. Um, anyway, um, so it's about one year uh, in the life of these two girls uh, that results in one of their deaths and then the um, ripple, rippling effects of that uh, throughout the rest of the characters' um, existences. So the main character's name is Kat. She's 15. She moves into a new town in rural Michigan. And of course, as one would be when one moves to a new town in, in rural Michigan at 15, she's lonely, um, has, doesn't have any new friends. And then she meets her new neighbor, Marlena, who is this really manic, pretty pill-popping girl. Uh, Kat gets really quickly lured into Marlena's orbit. She has, like, her first drink with her. She smokes her first cigarette with her, takes her first drugs with Marlena. Um, And as time goes on, Marlena's habits become more and more dangerous and upsetting. And then by the end of the year, Marlena is dead. She drowns in six inches of water in the woods. Um, And then, like, a ghost from that year surfaces unexpectedly when Kat is older. She has to try and forgive herself and move on, even as the memory of her friend uh, keeps her all tangled up in her past. So that's Marlena by Julie Bunton, which is out from Henry Holt and Company. And thanks for sponsoring the show. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. (laughs) I was telling you before the show, this sounds to me kind of in the vein of um, Girls on Fire by Robin Wasserman that I read. It came out last year. I just read it recently and talked about it on all the books. But this like very obsessive friendship between two teenage girls that turns dark and uh, twisty. Yeah. I love these. I I really enjoy a story of like two teenage girls with some weird friendships. friendships. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, perhaps it's, you know, your mid-30s or when you have enough distance from all of that teenage angst to be like, this is great material to read about now. Now that I don't care anymore. (laughs) Now that I'm 20 years out of it. And have healthy friendships. Right. (laughs) Oh, man, that looks so good. I've been really looking forward to it. Okay, so are you ready for a headline from like 1999? Yes, put it on me. Microsoft is unveiling a digital bookstore. What? <laughs> and it's called the Microsoft Digital Bookstore. Yep, yep, yep. I'm heard happily. This bookstore <laughs> is a place where you can buy books. Uh, it's going to be included in the next update of the Windows 10 operating system, which is coming out on April 11th. And it's going to sell hundreds of thousands of frontlist and backlist ebook titles. Uh, according to the report, ebook titles purchased from the digital bookstore can be read using Microsoft Edge, which is the Windows web browser that's replacing Explorer. Thank no. goodness something is, is replacing Explorer. Um, And apparently it's going to make it easier for consumers to e-read books on their PC, laptop, or tablet devices. So it's unclear to me if you buy a book like in the Microsoft digital bookstore and you don't want to read it on your PC or your laptop, like how do you read a Microsoft ebook on your phone? I assume they'll have an app. Maybe, I, I guess. I mean, there's nothing in this article about that. This so. is like just fully in the <laughs> I can't care category. Yeah, it seems like it's just designed to be read on like the computer. Mm-hmm. But the update will also add nightlight to the Windows OS, which is a feature that reduces blue light emitted from screens. So 
in my head, this is like you're sitting in bed with your laptop reading a book, which I have never done in my entire life on this planet. The only person that I know who reads books on their laptop is Liberty. And it's because that's how she likes to read PDFs of upcoming, like of galleys. Mm -hmm. But Mm -mm. no, I do remember on one of the Pew studies that it asks about digital reading and people reading on their computers. And it's like, there are people who report doing it, but it's a pretty small sliver as you would expect. Um, I am willing to guess that most of the people in that sliver are just like stealth reading on their work laptop when they're they're supposed to be looking at other documents. And I'm doing a thing. I'm totally Mm -hmm. doing a thing. But this is like, why are you it just you know that this cost them like millions of dollars in development and was it that like someone at microsoft was like you know everyone else has an a digital bookstore google has one we should probably have one let's do it like who wants this yeah it it feels like an afterthought like a a net that they're casting just to see what they catch and yeah. not like an actual um, like planned assault on the digital book market. And I would have a really hard time believing that this is in response to like user requests. Like I don't think they're solving a problem that Microsoft users have conveyed to them of like I really need a way to read ebooks. Like they don't know how to work their Nook. Right. People who use micro, you know, like it's just a, this is just a strange. It's very. It's very. Weird. I don't know. I also don't use like I don't use iBooks. I don't use Apple's ebook store either um mm. yeah. yeah if you're listening to this and you're like actually excited about a microsoft yeah. bookstore and you can get over the fact that we sound like such jerks about it um <laughs> oh, please email us podcast at bookriot.com and let us know like how are you going to use this um i would love to know that we're wrong about it so otherwise it's just it's just weird and unnecessary go spend your development money on something new now that you've replaced Explorer. Right. <laughs> good job, guys. At long, long last. Want me to tell you something good? Oh, that was really well done. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Please do. Wow. <laughs> Wait, I'm assuming you're talking about Gloria Gaynor. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> of course I was talking about Gloria Gaynor. All right, I was like, did I just mess up the segue? <laughs> no. No, you added to it. Great. There's going to be a disco party at the Library of Congress, and Gloria yes. Gaynor is going to be there. Yes, A plus one attend. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this party, Amanda. All right, so I Will Survive, which all of you know, uh, is going to be one of the 25 new additions to the National Recording Registry, which the Library of Congress keeps. It's a collection of uh, sound recordings that are considered like historically or culturally important to life in the U.S. So it's got like Thomas Edison's early cylinders, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Abbott and Costello's Who's On First, which I love. <laughs> yes, uh, And then like songs by Chuck Berry and Tupac. So it's a really interesting collection and I Will Survive is going to be added to it. And so like in celebration, Gloria Gaynor is coming to the Library of Congress and she's going to perform in the Great Hall as part of their uh, Biblio Discotheque, which is like a series <laughs> of films and lectures and parties celebrating the disco era um all of which will end with a late night disco party in the jefferson building and and the event is free and it's open to the public so you can yeah i know tickets went on sale yesterday at 10 a.m so if it's not sold or not on sale but like you could sign up for a ticket why don't we have tickets to this amanda (laughs) i know i don't know i i like i didn't realize it was happening that they were like the tickets were opening up so soon um anyway so 
it'll be uh, May sixth. I think is the date of the of the event. So if tickets are still available, go get yours and please like. Do it for the Vine, which I know no longer exists, but I'm still saying it because I'm in my 30s, and then send it to me. I want yes. to see you dancing in the Jefferson Building. Gif yourself doing disco at the Library of Congress, and we will put you on Book Riot. Oh, totally. <laughs> I will 100%. I will create a post for you. <laughs> this is like the best thing to have come out of the bo- the baby boomers taking over Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Like a disco party at the Library of Congress. And the uh, librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, is the first woman and the first black person to hold that office. And she's throwing a great, like, this is historic in a lot of ways. She gets to throw a disco party. This whole thing sounds amazing. So I really hope they drop disco balls from the ceiling. Okay, but one of the things for this celebration, which I guess is over a couple of days, is a demonstration on how to make disco balls. First of all, <laughs> the craft of making disco balls. I know. But there's also a lecture on Beyonce's African dance references. That's amazing. And disco and the remaking of American culture. I would attend all of these things. <laughs> we really should make this happen. <laughs> Tim Gunn is doing a thing. There's going to be Discussing a Saturday- disco fashion. Tim oh. Gunn is going to talk about disco fashion. <sighs> what does Kitten Play's 1990 film House Party have to do with disco culture? I don't know, but I'd like to find out. <laughs> I go to this so badly. <laughs> I never. My mother would be so into this. Oh, y'all! My mom is hilarious. And she, we she need would be... you and your mom to go do this together, and then I can just die happy. <laughs> oh my gosh! There's an ABBA movie that they're screening. A 40th anniversary showing of Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> a seven and a half hour marathon of Queer as Folk. Oh my god! <laughs> like. This is amazing. Part of me wishes that they were doing something more contemporary. You know, like, why is there not a thing about, like, hip-hop and culture with Kendrick Lamar happening at the Library of Congress? Do we have to wait until 2045 for that? Uh, I hope hope not. I hope this is just, like, the beginning of these kinds of things at the Library of Congress or something this cool. This is excellent programming. Is she – how long is Carla Hayden going to be in that – I don't know how role. long that lasts. I'm, is I'm it hoping like, it's not a thing where she's like appointed and now Trump's going to come ruin everything. Yeah, I remember she had to get <clears throat> confirmed because it mm-hmm. was we were like trying to get an interview with her and they were they told us like, well, she can't talk to you until after all the confirmation stuff is over. But I don't know. The only like a hand. I think it's only like 13 people have held the position. Hmm. So I, I wonder if it's kind of a like a Supreme Court justice situation, like until you retire or die <laughs> until you're done. Yeah. Stay with us, Carla. Who would not want to be the librarian of Congress? Like, once you have that job. Well, if you get to schedule 40th anniversary showings of Saturday Night Fever, then it's that's true. amazing. So, <laughs> I, would leave I don't even know what else to say about this other than, like, this is the most delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's only even kind of book adjacent, but it's happening in a library. It's very good. I would go to parties in libraries. I think that would be fun. It would be fun. That's like the only way that either of us is going to leave our house is if someone's like, look, there's going to be a disco party at the library. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are concerts and stuff in like the Richmond library, the big, you know, big branch downtown. Mm. But it's always like symphonies. And no. Yeah, no. 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 I got to put on pants for that. I'm not doing that. But I would put on some like velvet bell bottoms and do some disco. Oh my God, please do that. <laughs> please find velvet <laughs> bell bottoms. I'm going to like send a note to your husband that's like, dear Bob, please get Rebecca some velvet <laughs> My birthday is not until December. <laughs> Don't you have an anniversary sometime? Like, what is- 
I have the perfect present. I believe that this is what we call an anytime gift, Amanda. That's true. That's true. Velvet bell bottoms. It's amazing. <laughs> Before we roll on, I want to tell you about our last sponsor of the week. I am so excited that they are sponsoring the show because I loved this book. It's Everybody Yoga by Jessamine Stanley. She is a really incredible yoga teacher. Um, she de first developed a huge following on Instagram. The book is about breaking stereotypes, inspiring beginners of all shapes and sizes to try yoga. Um, Jessamine is a black woman. She is self-described as a fat black woman. So her body is not the kind of body that you typically see if you're trolling around on yoga hashtags on Instagram. And that's what makes her work so important um, and activist. And this is a how-to book. It's also a memoir. There are sort of there are essays dispersed throughout about her childhood, her life growing up, how she found her way into yoga, the challenges that she faced, um, becoming a yogi whose body is not the typical yoga body that you see, uh, you know, projected as here's a person who does yoga. But yoga really is built so that anyone can do it. If you have a body, you have a yoga body. Uh, so the book is for readers who are already doing yoga that are looking to refresh their practice. If you're a beginner, you're going to pick up great tips about some of the basic poses and ways to modify them. So um, even if the standard beginning way is difficult or impossible for your body shape, you can practice yoga that works for you. It has how-to with 50 yoga poses. There are 10 sequences that you can practice at home, or you can string them together. I've been doing that in my home yoga practices, using her sequences some of the time, and they're really fun. The book talks about issues of body acceptance, the real meaning of beauty, and most of all, it's one that really changes the paradigm. And people talk about this when they write copy for books all the time, like this is paradigm shifting and revolutionary, but mm -hmm. this really is this work that she's doing. It shows us that yoga is not about how you look, but about how you feel, um, and that as we've been saying, anybody can be a yoga body. Jessamine is so charismatic. If you follow her on Instagram, her Instagram stories are always funny and inspiring and so smart. She doesn't use yoga speak. She just talks like a normal person to you, another normal person. And this is really the way that yoga is meant to be. It's body positive. It's personal. It's about making it work for you. Uh, and I love that she is really so down to earth about it. The sequences are named things like, I need to feel balanced. I want to stand strong. I need to chill the F out. <laughs> it's like, here are 10 poses to do when your hair's on fire. She talks about social pressure, about self-judgment, about insecurity that holds us back from achieving things both on the mat and uh, off in regular life. She talks about some of the toxic things in the commercialized yoga culture that are really counter to what yoga is supposed to be all about. Um, she talks about creating your own community, how to get started, and how to practice yoga if you think you are too weak, too inflexible, too slow, too old, too overweight, or disabled, and that there is a yoga practice for you. There's also a fascinating history of modern yoga and how it evolved from an ancient practice. Um, I really, really loved the book. I'm so happy to get to tell you all about it. It's from Workman Publishing. It's out now. We'll have a link in the show notes or you can pick it up wherever books are sold. Again, it's Everybody Yoga by Jessamine Stanley. Okay, it's so good. <laughs> when we got, uh, when they were, when our sales department was like working on the pitch for this, our sales guy, Jan, asked me like, so what do you think would, you know, be good on the site for this? And I was like, just send it to Rebecca. Just send it to Rebecca. <laughs> Put it body, on the body positive yoga representation. <laughs> 
it's really amazing. Um, it's a really, she has a great Instagram account also. If you yeah, definitely go follow her on Instagram. It's she's awesome. But the book is so so useful. I've been referring back to it for yoga sequences. I'm going to do uh, yoga teacher training coming up this fall. And so I also felt like I was kind of cheating a little, like learning mm-hmm. stuff about the history of yoga before anyone's even making me. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you're just interested in it naturally. Yeah. Isn't that funny? <laughs> oh, and the book is illustrated. So there are photos of Jessamine and other yoga practitioners with all kinds of bodies making all kinds of shapes. Um, I really did love that this wasn't like, here are the 25 most impressive yoga poses where you're like arm balancing with your feet up in the air. And no, she's like, you're, you know, here's how to do downward facing dog, get the basics right. And don't worry about how fancy it is. Um, I really appreciated that. It feels very true to the spirit of yoga to me. So whether you're a new practitioner or have never done it at all, I think this is a this book is a great introduction. And um, I'm going to talk about it on all the books. So I guess I'm just pitching it to everyone now too. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a great introduction. But also, if you've never tried yoga because you felt like you couldn't go into a yoga class or a yoga studio, this would be a great way to inter- introduce yourself to the ideas and get comfortable before you go do that. Um, so you're welcome, Workman, for the fact that I liked your book so much. <laughs> All right. All right. Where do you want to? Where do you want to go? Let's talk about Hachette. Okay. Because I don't understand this. I don't either. All right. All right. So Hachette UK is launching a new diversity initiative, which great. Um, it's a creative writing hub. It's called the Future Bookshelf, and uh, it's to make publishing more accessible for writers who feel like they aren't represented well. Uh, by the industry. So the point of it is to demystify publishing, right? It guides new writers, um, people who are using the website through the process of like writing, editing, submitting your manuscripts to agents and all that. Uh, it gives you like tips and has infographics from people that Hachette have already has already published. Uh, so they have, they're having like an open submissions period in December um, for writers who feel the industry does not adequately represent people from their background or with their experiences. Um, so okay. <laughs> I'm trying to like be open-minded about this because I'm, I'm here for like anything that publishing feels like they need to do to diversify uh, both their employee stables and their, uh, their, you know, front and back lists uh, is great. That's a thing that publishing should be thinking about. I guess I just don't understand how this is going to work. Like, how, yeah. is there going to be a gate, like a gatekeeper? Like, couldn't somebody like if a white man feels like he's he grew up in a coal town and like there's not enough representation of coal industry people, you know, is he going to does that qualify? You know, I, like I'm wondering what they mean by Yeah, I think this is a case of good intentions and like we re- we recognize that there are problems with diversity in our industry, but I'm really hung up on the use of the word feel in yeah. the description. Like, yeah, me too. To make publishing more accessible for writers who feel they aren't well represented by the industry. Now, I haven't seen the diversity numbers for UK publishing, but we can speak to the diversity numbers of US publishing. And they are abysmal. Like 89% of publishing employees are white. 3% of books, I think, in 2016 that were published were by or about people of color. Just like unacceptably small numbers. So feel is not part of it. Like this should say to make publishing more accessible for writers who aren't well represented by the industry. But beyond that, it just seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what the problem is. Like Mm -hmm. the problem is not that 
black people don't understand how to submit your manuscript to get it published, right? Or that they don't know how to query agents. agents. The problem is that publishing is so white. It's so non-diverse. And people pull primarily from submissions that are similar to them. And white people continue to get published because that's how systematic racism (laughs) works. And so it feels like... Oh, we want to do a thing, so we're going to provide education for people from underrepresented groups. And that is good. We mm-hmm. should have these programs. But it also won't make any difference unless the pipeline changes. Yeah. There's, like, further down in this article, um, I guess Hachette has instituted, like, a, an overarching diversity initiative uh, as, like, a company that they're calling Changing the Story, which is tasked with making Hachette the publisher and employer of choice for all people, regardless of age, disability, race, gender, sexuality, or socioeconomic mm. background, uh, and has been created and implemented by employees from all levels of seniority. So it does really sound like oh, that's good. Okay. this is maybe just part of like one cog in the wheel of whatever it is Hachette's trying to do. Um, I just don't understand how it's going to be. I don't like the word gatekeeping, but like, how is it going to mm-hmm. be gatekept? Like, who running this is going to read a submission and decide that this person actually feels, is underrepresented right, feels that he's not adequately represented but actually is or this person isn't and yeah i don't i don't know that and it kind of puts the onus of diversifying fiction and nonfiction on the writers as opposed to mm-hmm. on the publishers which is the incorrect place to put the responsibility like it's yeah. not it's not an author's job to learn how to game the system better so that they can get their book about a black teenager published. It's publishing's job to go find books about black teenagers. So um, I appreciate what they're trying to do. And I really am glad that this is part of like a larger thing that the company is doing. But um, I just have questions, I guess. Yeah. And I wonder, I haven't seen anything comparable come out from Hachette us so i'm interested if in that it maybe it exists and it's just not getting publicity um and if it doesn't exist i would have questions about that as well it seems like we're we've heard about a couple of these plans from uk publishers they seem to be a couple steps ahead of us publishers in terms of actually acknowledging that this is real and then trying to address it Hmm. so that is that's good and hopefully inspiring. Yeah, I think it was uh, Penguin. Was it Penguin in in the UK that like got rid of the requirement for having a college yes. degree in order to yeah. work for them, which was a really mm-hmm. great move. And I wish that they would do that here. Same. If they would get rid of that and unpaid internships, we would have, I think, eliminate a lot of the issues about yeah. how white publishing is. But that's a whole other rant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's save the rant and end on a high note okay, this okay. week. <laughs> Amazon has landed a limited series based on Colson. And Whitehead's Underground Railroad. It is, uh-huh. It's in development with a script to series commitment. It's going to be a one-hour original limited drama um, that is going to be um, directed by Barry Jenkins, who is the writer-director of Moonlight. It's being produced by Plan B, which is uh, Brad Pitt's company, um, and Adele Romansky. So the project was taken to the marketplace in the fall when Moonlight was just starting to gain awards momentum. If you have not watched Moonlight yet, I sincerely recommend it. Don't do it alone because it will make you cry. Um, that, that won three Academy Awards. Of course, this is going to be based on Colson Whitehead's novel, which was an Oprah pick and was just a huge break. This is, I think, really interesting. Moonlight does such interesting things um, with race and uh, in the case of the Moonlight story with race and sexuality. The Underground Railroad is 
less grounded in reality because, well, like very grounded in reality, but also it has a literal underground railroad that helps people to escape the South on trains that run under the ground in in 1860s. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out on screen and what that does, I think, to the magical realism feel of that element. But I think it's in very good hands with Barry Jenkins. Um, And I'm wondering about sort of the process of how this story uh, ended up, how it ended up at Amazon. Very smart for Amazon to acquire it. I guess this is going to be like an eight or 10 episode run, kind of like what um, HBO is doing with Big Little Lies right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, very good news. I haven't seen Moonlight and I haven't read The Underground Railroad. So from afar, I'm excited about this. <laughs> but up close, I'm like, I don't I don't have an opinion. I have no opinion. <laughs> I didn't realize you hadn't read The Underground Railroad, Amanda I know, Nelson. I haven't. I actually think I was planning on listening to it on audio and it just got buried underneath Mm. You know, a bunch of other audiobooks I was listening to. Anyway, um, my bad. I'm always happy to see marginalized people in Hollywood do things because they are, I feel like (laughs) Hollywood's diversity problems are even worse than publishing, which is hard. It's hard to beat the whiteness of publishing, the unbearable whiteness of the publishing industry. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so all right. Yeah, Go Barry Jenkins. Yeah, and good job, Colson Whitehead. Oh, get all the movies to Colson Whitehead. Just give him all the stuff. So much of his, like, so many of his books would be great on TV or the big screen. Maybe they will, like, go into his backlist. I would watch Zone 1 or, like, The Intuition is just so weird. This that is what be- I'm saying. Like, how how has The Walking Dead been happening for, like, 10 years and we still don't have a Zone 1 movie? Right. We still can't get, like, a sarcastic zombie hunter with <laughs> his existential like, angst. Wee, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just lots of cursing. And like drinking, <laughs> it would be so good. Nihilistic it, zombie mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need more of those. We do. <laughs> Make this happen, please. <laughs> I just, yeah, I really want to hear from listeners who read the Underground Railroad what you think this is going to be like on screen. Um, I'm excited to watch it. It's man, it's in good hands, so I'm not worried. I'm so, I'm just so curious about how that's going to play out. Oh, the casting. It's going to be fun to watch. Okay. So congratulations to Colson Whitehead, because that is obviously a huge deal. And I will look forward to watching it. I guess maybe it'll come out next year. They're already writing it. So would we consider him mid-list? I was going to say it's always nice to see a mid-list author get like this really big recognition, but I don't know if he's mid-list anymore. Like once Oprah puts her sticker on your book, are you still (laughs) mid-list? Well, I mean... It's not a static state, right? Like, I think he was solidly mid-list before Underground Railroad. And his books are also different from each other. That And Underground Railroad's sales did not go super bananas, even after the Oprah thing. Like, Jeff and I followed that last year. And our theory was that the book is, like, it's difficult subject matter. And his writing is really gorgeous. Um but also, it's not the easiest book to read. It's and it's a hard book to recommend to people. Like, yeah, it's, you're going to read really difficult things about slavery for 350 pages. Um, that the sales weren't like super crazy. So I think he did crack the bestsellers list. But it'll be interesting to see whatever he does next because each book tends to really be very different from all the ones before it. And I think what the next book is about will probably determine if he stays like bestsellery or returns to kind of mid-list status. Not and there's nothing wrong with the mid-list. We're not using that as a pejorative term. Oh no, at all. not at all. Um 
but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm not sure that he's a household name enough for like anything that he writes that has his name on it to just be a bestseller yet. It's not like Gillian Flynn. Yeah. I don't well, know why is? that was. Yeah, right, Stephen that's King. true. <laughs> that's a whole other level. I want Speaking them to write Stephen a book King, together. Like, I just did, really need. Did you watch the It trailer? God, yes. Oh, <laughs> which I immediately regret. I regret all of my choices. <laughs> I've never read it. That business is terrifying. You've never read it? It's so bonkers. Like, no. Stephen King's brain is just the, the weirdest place. I read All that sh- cocaine did a thing to that man's, like, synapses. <laughs> I, just- I read The Shining in fourth grade. Like, I'm, I'm positive that my parents did not know what I was reading. Mm. And it scared the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I should not be allowed to read this, but I'm going to finish it. Mm. <laughs> and- Have you seen the original movie? The It? Uh, no, no. Tim Curry is terrifying in that movie. As, as the clown, as Pennywise. Mm. So I'm, I have that, you know, very, like, traditionalist, get-off-my-lawn sort of, well, the first time, it was fine, so I don't <laughs> see why they have to do it Why again. are they no, ruining no, no, no. the original? Yeah, but it's not, it's a, a movie based, based on a book, so whatever. I'm yeah. being a dork about it, but I honestly don't see how anyone can, can put a new spin on that character, because Tim Curry's, like, his smile was just the, you know, Tim Curry's smile's already a little bit creepy, mm-hmm. and then the clown makeup, and it's just, ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, Bob came home from work yesterday and was like, so I watched the It trailer on my phone without sound, and it scared me. Oh. But I need to watch it with sound, so we pulled it up on YouTube on the big living room TV, and I was like, this is too, like, one minute of this was too much for me. Too much. Two hours. Two hours. <sighs> I don't know if I'm strong enough for that. I'm probably not going to watch it. I've become a really big horror movie uh, wuss since I had children. And that entire movie, is, I mean, and the book, the book is like 800 pages of children being terrorized. And I don't think I can handle that now that I have kids. Um, that seems so wise. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> we should drop a link to that in the show notes as well, because I know we covered it this week. If you have not watched the It trailer, we're here to hold your hands. Mm-hmm. I think that wraps up our show. Woohoo! We were all over the place today. So thanks for hanging out with me. Of course. You're yeah, you're actually coming to hang out with me later at this afternoon. I know. So this is- <laughs> it's not just for the internet people. We really are <laughs> friends. <laughs> uh, Liberty and I, I guess you and Jen probably get this from Get Booked too, but occasionally we get emails that are like, are you guys really friends or do you just pretend to be friends on your podcast? Oh, we've never, I, well, unless Jen gets them and hides them from me, we haven't, but yes, me and Jen are actually friends. Yeah. Yeah. We all really do like each other. Uh, so we're going to get out of here. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to third love, go to thirdlove.com slash book riot to start your free, uh, 30 day trial of any bra in the 24 seven collection to Marlena by Julie Bunton and to everybody yoga by Jessamine Stanley. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes, which are now included in the little description section of whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast, you can just click your way right there. You can also find them at bookriot.com slash slash listen. If you have a note for us, drop us a line at podcast at bookriot.com. You can hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Amanda's handle is I'm Amanda Nelson. Of course, Book Riot can be found wherever Book Riot is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 